Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 692. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. 692. Man. Listen. We are coming, I'm in the UK as you can, I hope you know by now, and we are getting set for another heatwave is coming this week, the end of the week, Friday, Saturday, so stay safe, stay cool, plenty of liquids, we got it about sometime in July, we had the heatwave, and man, we weren't ready, you know, you're just not ready for it, England, you know what I mean, Great Britain there, the UK, it was just never seen... Well, we, had, we hadn't we hadn't seen temperatures of that high before, and it kind of caught one a hop. So, before we even start, look after yourselves when it comes. Yes. So, straight into the show. What have we got on? I'll tell you what's coming in. The main fiction is The Apiarist by Cara Hoffman. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Yes, we're looking back at genre history. That's all coming today, sure. Do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So we'll jump straight into the main fiction. Like I say, it is The Aberist by Cara Hoffman. Now, this story originally appeared in Ruin, the PM Press, on 2022. Cara Hoffman is the author of three New York Times editors' choice novels and the founding editor of the Anarchist Review of Books. Her latest book, Ruin, is published by PM Press. She lives in Athens, Greece. Now, Cara, we've just been... I'm going off track here. We just went to Kefalonia in July and it was boiling. And that's the food. Then we came back to the UK wanting cool weather. And this is what. Then we had the heat wave in and it was like boiling again. So, you know all about the heat, Cara. Now, this story is narrated by Mary Murphy. Mary is a New York based 
actor, voice-over artist. She loves the world of audio drama and is delighted to be back on board Starship Sofa. She's performed in the theatre, film, TV, animation, radio and video game. A few of her recent credits include the one-woman play An Evening with Lola Monzes, It's a Wonderful Life, a stream performance of a piece near Nelly Bly and the audio dramas Frontier Gentlemen, Chinook and Newfield. She can be heard voicing various characters for Disney, Go Kid Go, Leapfrog, the Centre for New American Media, Audible and Audemance. She's also a regular performer on the audio drama series Fireside Mystery Theatre, the No Sleep Podcast and many other audio venues. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Apiarist by Kara Hoffman, read by Mary Murphy. The helicopter hovered above the still green retina of the in-ground pool where the girl lay on her towel. A single armed Adonis hung from the door in his flak jacket, dark glasses and boots. And she shaded her eyes, hoping he might land on the long stretch of burnt prairie that rolled out to the perimeter fence. But it was caught as it descended, pulled up suddenly as if by an invisible wire, then banked just as fast and was gone over the yellow hill. The air was thick with pollen, and she lay sweltering beneath the scant shade of a battered awning by the abandoned cabana. Reluctant to get up and cross the hot cement to slip beneath the murky water, She rested her arm over her face and began to drift, wishing she was back at work in that perfectly ordered world, the smell of wax and honey and wholesome fire, the little bellows puffing clouds of calming smoke into the hive so that she and Tetsuo could tend the bees. A second helicopter passed lower this time, deafening, blotting out the sun, The dry grass rippled in waves. She pulled the top of her bathing suit down, exposing her breast to the cool wind. And one of the soldiers leaned out to snap a picture. The first one was anti-personnel. This one was to document its work. Above her, inaudible, the boy with the gun said, That was so nice. Yeah, that's all Green's getting, said the boy with the camera. That's all Green's ever got, said the boy behind the stick. Green laughed. (laughs) No, man, you know, for real. It was just nice of her. It was the only living body they'd photographed that week. Past the cinder block dormitories and white plywood outbuilding and the long half-sunken bunker of the Medtest lay the shade of the pomegranate grove where Tetsuo waited, zipped into his suit. She walked quickly, sweating, checking for gaps at her ankles and neck, making sure she was sealed in, running her gloved hands over the hood, looking for holes. He raised a fistful of dead grass, and she raised a green plastic lighter and flicked a spark by way of greeting. Today they checked the bees for mites, see if any had brought viruses home to the hive, expose the queen. They'd scoop clumps of delicate bodies off the combs and examine the brood cells, see who was ready to be born, to learn the mapping flights, who had died and been reabsorbed. They'd mix oxalic acid with sugar and spray it on frames, and they would stand together as they did each day, 
silent at the center of the circumambient hum, unable to see each other's faces, their voices muffled or raspy from heat and thirst and fatigue. Tetsuo Uber was the great-great-grandson of the inventor of the hanging frame. The file cabinet-like constructions where bees build their hives, white boxes that could be seen in other places, stacked in lone meadows or by the crest of highways, somewhere near fall flowers, near berry bushes or orchards. Outside the apiary's little grove, there was nowhere else to go, beside the swimming pool and the dust road that ran along the perimeter fence. She took the job because she could work in the field instead of the lab, be outside, be visible from the air in case some kind soldier flying over had room for a passenger. If there was any dying to do, it wouldn't be done underground or in a crowd. The thought of dying in a crowd was unbearable, and these details factored into the distelliology that she somehow considered to be decisions she'd made, a kind of self-determination brought about by fate, brought about by narrowing the concentric circles of providence. They worked without speaking, baking in their white suits, and it was only in the packaging plant or the changing room where they wiped sweat from their faces and smoked and shuffled over to drink from the fountain that she could see him, pale like a creature who lived near the ocean floor, his face deeply lined, arms dotted with the raised scabs of stings, dark, intelligent eyes. She handed him the shipping forms for a case of propolis, and he signed his name beneath hers, the percussive scrape of the pen like a match being struck. Her signature never appeared alone, was always followed by detainee number and housing block number, the same numbers which were stamped inside her boots and on the collar of her protective suit. Still, a signature is all it takes to get you work in zones of discord, places that no longer mattered or may soon become unmapped, and she determined that this work would be instructive down to the cellular level, would rebuild, through the resistance to stings and the consumption of honey, whatever discipline or determination it was that floated the helicopter day trips of armed beauties with telephoto lenses, that kept them weaving a rope of sand, kept them hovering between corpses and the exposed breasts of women in work camps. When it was clear that she had studied somewhere, they asked if she knew anything about entomology. Having just come from six weeks in an experimental trial in the med test, and still seeing halos around each tree, faces rising from the dirt, spiders shimmering in every drop of water, she told them yes, yes. The sheet smelled like sweat and smoke, and the room was hot. But the house was her own, a particle board cube with a tar paper roof and cracked solar panels, near an outcropping of limestone by the billets. Such freedom... At night, the big cats shrieked like wind. The stars were no different than before. Dreams were still landscapes of sex and food and cities, keys that worked, locks that broke, a getaway car, the ability to swim in the sky. Or dreams were of Tetsuo lying beside her, 
his belly rising and falling, his breath making no sound while she drew on his skin with the tip of a finger, signing her name, writing about the algae thick as moss on the swimming pool walls, about the pieces of waxy comb she chewed to keep from feeling hungry. No touch could wake him in the dream, no story. The curtainless windows in the dream are black. A single lethargic bee crawled in the corner of the sill, and it turned out it could speak. And then there's a siren, and she ran to put her boots on to head for the border fence, but it's only the siren that signals the start of day. She picked up a pound of margarine, a pound of rice, two loaves of white bread, coffee, apples, a pomegranate, two packs of cigarettes, more than enough food to supplement the meat kit. She ate honey by the tablespoon. She went to the billets when she was sure she wouldn't see another human face, especially the short-timers, or the people who'd just arrived. They didn't pretend they were somewhere else, like home, like an apartment, or a hotel, or a college internship. They didn't pretend they were an apprentice to an artisan, or a scientist. They didn't go to the pool, though they could. No one went to the pool but the girl. The other prisoners were housed two or five to a barracks. Most of their work was in the factories, and some were employed, what could be called employed, in the medical testing facilities. Tetsuo had a bicycle and a ring of keys, a cat, an account at a bank, and a garden of grasses and stones. But he was still inside the fence, serving his sentence, too, from inside a green-shingled house on a rise to the east of the apiary. When the helicopters ceased to pass, Tetsuo would not be traded for another living body, nor for a dead body, nor pieces of a dead body, nor for information. When the helicopters ceased to pass, no one would show up to debrief him. He would put on his yellow helmet, put his cat in a side pouch, and ride his bicycle away. Or when the helicopters ceased to pass, nothing would happen. No one would be traded or debriefed. No one would go home. And there would be silence. There would be winter. The girl in Tetsuo would produce honey for no one to pick up. The women in the med test and the women in the factory would wander away, not worth a bullet. The difference between authority and the lack of it having had, after all, no real distinction. Several years' investment in the outskirts of inhumanity would have been dissolved by the day-to-day, by common language, by the undeniable likenesses in form, and all that form disguises. People, even the girl could remember that California wasn't always like this. Or maybe, she thinks, they could remember that it was always something like this, Believing in a future, any future, was a luxury she had because of Tetsuo. Her skin wasn't a petri dish for variations on entropy, or the thin red landscape for chemical burns, observed with a lover's steady mastery of the detail. She was not looking into human eyes that looked into her human eyes, while feeding her chemicals that had yet to be named. Neither was she sitting with her mind in blank repose, as she helped build some or other mysterious item for deployment. She kept bees, 
She swam between the tile crosses at the ends of the algae-covered lap lanes, and this was not the apocalypse of her dreams. This was no uncovering, no peeling back the surface to reveal anew, Adam and Eve amidst the rubble, back to back a four-legged creature that could at last think. She kept bees. She swam between the tile crosses at the ends of the algae-covered lap lanes. And this was not the apocalypse of her dreams. This was no uncovering. No peeling back the surface to reveal anew. Adam and Eve amidst the rubble, back to back a four-legged creature that could at last think and do on its own. And she thought about Tetsuo's veined white hands as he suited up, and later as he lit a cigarette. The languidness there. A defeat or inertia, or simply biding, waiting. For three thousand years, people had been eating honey that had first passed through thousands of tiny mouths, made from particles of yellow dust that hung in the air and coated the stamens of flowers, honey that was made in a home constructed of nectar and spit. And there was poison, too. She remembered a story about a hive near a mechanic shop, bees drinking antifreeze, making green honey. And ancient poison, too, the honey from the rhododendron flower, she thought which wiped out a Roman invasion near the Black Sea. Soldiers poisoned, helpless. She drew new houses for the bees with a stub of a pencil that had been left in her room, schematics that would increase the production of the Apis mellifera, and gave them to Tetsuo before they opened the hive. Why do you think they'll produce more inside this construction? He said. It expands the space for brood cells, she said without having to stack another super. It would require more fertilization to produce more females. This doesn't simplify anything. You can assume the hive will self-regulate, especially mellifera, but you can't predict the initial response. It's compensated for after the new brood matures. The Uber design has remained unchanged for 180 years because it works. But they'll use any space said the girl. No, he said. Sometimes they leave. All of them. He tossed the drawing to the ground and pumped the bellows, and the smell of burning grass and paper filled the air. She lifted the lid of the white box and slid a frame out, and the bees moved toward their food, murmuring, gorging. Every day was not the same, even for the bees, even though their world burned down and then ceased to burn down with great regularity. If the world was on fire, the girl said, watching their yellow bodies move like one trembling creature through the smoke, it wouldn't make me hungry. It wouldn't make me work. Tetsuo looked up at her. Oh, no, he said. The next afternoon, seven helicopters passed over the pool as she swam. A cloud of them. A swarm, a flock, like with crows. Is it a murder? A murder of helicopters passing? The stuttering chop and thump of blades reverberated through the landscape. And they were not on voyeur maneuvers. They were not low enough to cause a breeze, or moving slowly enough for her to catch a glimpse of who was inside. 
the smell of burning rubber caught in her throat each time she broke the surface to take a breath. The pool was warm as bath water, and she swam close to the bottom, opening her eyes to the hazy green that covered the walls like moss. The black crosses that marked the end of each lap lane were barely visible beneath. She reached out to touch one, but jerked her hand away, revulsed, shuddering at the slickness. What was the state of the Pacific? How was it to swim there now? Last time she had seen the ocean was at night, and the black water lapped at the coast. All she wanted was a rising world of water, dark and deep. No heat, no hum, no baking dust, no songs of artillery. In the beginning, when she first came to the camp, she believed a passing helicopter was bound to drop down long enough to pick her up, to set her somewhere outside the fence. She could walk from there to safety, or could have if it weren't for the mines, if it weren't for the food she'd miss, if it weren't for Tetsuo's closely shorn hair, or the way he hardly needed to shave, or the way he held his hands when administering drugs to insects his hands nearly weightless holding their fragile bodies. It was not the pale skin at his wrist, she thought. No one is imprisoned by the blue veins beneath the pale skin at someone's wrist. If you've been saved from hunger and fire, if you swim and walk and speak while others burn, are you still prisoner? She swam until exhaustion then lay in the sun watching a dark column of smoke billowing up from the earth beyond the hillside, thinking of the fisherman and his soul. She'd read about him back when the library was still standing. The fisherman had fallen in love with someone who wasn't human, so he stood by the sea and cut his soul away at the feet, not to repent, but so that he could live with her. When he was free from his soul, he dove into the ocean to join his love, to become her comrade. Every year his soul would come to the shore and beg for him to return, bribe him with the riches of experience, stories of beauty it had seen, how it lain in the snow beneath the northern lights, raced beside the strongest animals, listened to the voices of children ringing like bells. It had watched the sun shining low and orange through a corridor of glass towers, had danced and wandered, cooked and eaten, slept and woken. It had watched the stars fill the black night. But these stories meant nothing to the fisherman. Each year he refused his soul. After many years of these stories, the soul came around pleading, torn and filthy, telling the fisherman of his thefts and cruelties and finally murders, and fishermen listened no more. The soul wandered, howling in rage and grief at the water's edge. How could it have done anything but beg and plead and kill without its heart? This, she thought, was the apocalypse of man. All soul, opportunistic soul, starving soul, gorged on blood until there was no more then weeping to its own form for reconciliation, pleading for the return of a thing that would make it do right. Once, stung inside her ear, the mean spike brought such immediate rage she screamed, toppled the hive, 
tore her hood off and stumped it. Her jaw was throbbing, her eyes were burning, streaming. The tiny dart was still in her ear, a needle with an abdomen connected to it. Bees landed on her skin, and Tetsuo dropped the smoker at her feet, held her shoulders with gloved hands. He said, stay inside your body. When that happens, you stay inside your body. She'd always had luck. A corner of the public library instead of a bed. Blinding white light that swallowed the street where she'd lived. No money to secure a trip farther than the edge of the ruined town. Without that kind of luck, she'd be dead now. Wouldn't have been picked up at all. Wouldn't have had a free trip to a tech colony. Without luck like that, she might be rising in a column of oily ash. She mentioned the helicopters as they sat on the benches in the packaging plant, and he didn't respond unzipped his suit and lit a cigarette. She'd seen him every day for two years, and in most of that time he had worn the white suit. In all of that time they had spoken about insects. When he pulled off his boots and placed his bare feet on the tile, and she could feel the coldness of the floor in her own body. I'll come with you to the pool, he said. She walked over to drink from the fountain, Tomorrow, he said, after we look at the mellifera. That night she dreamt she was down with the fishermen in a cathedral of sound in the black Pacific. The water was thick with voices whose harmonies shifted in weight and density, and the sound was glorious and everywhere, pressing against her eyes, pouring into her mouth, pulling her flesh. The fisherman showed her his home with such pride, but it was as green and empty as the pool, and she saw now that his teeth were shells, a weed flapping raggedly between them. He swam with his love, and she was white and hideous like a thing that's never come to the surface, and no one had ever looked as happy as the fisherman down there, all body and heart. But the song that flowed through them, that lifted them like waves, it wasn't a choir at all. Whose song is this? She asked, but knows already that it was his soul. Beneath the sky's dark mirror, inside the sea's heavy belly, his soul's misery had become his heart's delight. The music they lived by, the walls of their home. The girl was waiting for Tetsuo in the heat her feet hanging over the side of the pool, the smell of algae and smoke thick in the air. He walked, wearing gray shorts and rubber sandals, bare-chested. A diving mask pushed up on his forehead, another in his hand. She'd never seen so much of his body before, and she looked down at her arms, dark, burnt, peeling, her hair was black and dull from sun and chlorine and dust, a gunmetal washed out black, and she looked away as he got closer, fighting the embarrassment at not seeing him in his protective suit and of feeling herself a piece of kindling. We received a new shipment of Apis Dorsida, he said, handing her the other mask and squatting before her on the concrete, elbows resting on his knees. The rubber straps felt stiff and crumbly as she slid it over her head. No one raises Dorsida, she said. 
They're like dinosaurs. We do now. You can put them by the pomegranates, she said. But it's hard to imagine they'll be happy enough to stay. And those stings. They won't need the trees, he said. We'll be feeding them ourselves. Nothing has changed in three thousand years, she thought. And she said, I won't make poison. You won't be making it, he said. But it's interesting, don't you think? Something new to study? It's the smallest detail that forms the autonomy in every slavery, she thought. The slavery in each choice that's made. The compulsion and the reflex, the opposing symmetries. Eighty thousand bees in the hives here with the hairs on their legs. A song that tells them where to find food. Each bee sings with its body, its own song of proximity. And every woman at the med test walks there on her own. Because they have all, she understood now, looking at Tetsuo's scarred and solid chest, left the body. Like the miserable, murdering soul, they'd been pulled from the body. Like the bee left its soft stomach and spike in her ear. And maybe all of them were languishing like that bee, unnoticed, dying, dismembered. Their last involuntary reflex having pulled them inside out. He slipped off his sandals and put his feet in the water, slid his lean body in and strapped the goggles over his eyes, and they swam in their separate lanes to the crosses at the end. With the mask, everything was clear, the water full of particulate life shining gray and silver and green. Sunlight illuminated the cement floor, a web of cracks eclipsed briefly by a helicopter passing above. The algae-covered walls were bright, and Tetsuo swam beside her, and she saw the architecture of his legs, of his back as he crested to breathe, as he moved through the veil of green, through the bands of gold light, close enough for her to touch. After many laps, she didn't look at him, and then he was gone, standing in the shallow end, barely visible, a glitch of movement amid static. She dove to skim the bottom and stand beside him. It was refreshing, he said, and pulled himself up, standing on the hot cement, running a hand through his hair. You can keep the mask, he said, then turned, walked away barefoot, sandals dangling from his fingers. The girl moved into his lane and kept swimming, and as she neared the wall, she saw shapes cut into the algae like a petroglyph. In the slick green life at the center of the cross, he had written her name with his fingertip, and she read it, weightless in the green and luminous pool, while above the quiet swarm of spinning blades cut the light in two. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And there you go. Big thank you to Cara. Cara, thank you so much. And Mary, what a voice. Lovely. Honestly, just took your way into that story. Thank you so much indeed. So it's August and it is our very own Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. Ames! Hello my friends, it's time for another look back into genre history. And today I have something special for you and my fingers are crossed that you're going to enjoy it. I was recently invited by the Morse Institute Library series to give a talk as part of that series. And to be perfectly honest, I just had a great time putting this talk together. I also had a great time giving the talk, and I had a terrific audience, and it was a great experience. And I got to thinking that perhaps you might be interested in the talk as well. I certainly would love to share it with you. And so today I'd like to recreate that talk, if I may, and see what you think about it. So my talk was Finding History in Star Wars, and... I do share a few things that I have shared in the past in Starship Sofa segments years ago, but quite a bit of what I'm talking about is also new to my segment on Starship Sofa. And I'm also trying to balance the idea of history and the current day. So I wanted to make my examples as relevant to current events as possible, too, while also discussing history. There's also a little bit of Star Trek in here, as well as Star Wars. So with no further ado, I would like to talk to you about finding history in Star Wars, and I hope you will enjoy this adventure and journey with me. First of all, a disclaimer, as I so often start my discussions, my true confession, which I'm sure I've shared with you before, is that my first love wasn't Star Wars, it was Star Trek. I was listening to reruns of the original series from the womb, I'm pretty sure, and I know that there was a time in my early childhood development (laughs) when I pretty much thought 
the word television was synonymous with Star Trek. If someone was watching television, that meant watching Star Trek. And in my early years, I grew up watching the original series in reruns and the animated series in its original run and became quickly and thoroughly a fan of science fiction. And this is one of the reasons I think that my campaign to watch Star Wars in the movie theater, like a grown-up lady, even though I was five, was successful. And my parents ultimately took me to see the original Star Wars in 1977, I think six times. And at any rate, the two, Star Trek and Star Wars together, were the one-two punch that led me to a lifelong love of science fiction. And as I think you're pretty aware at this point, (laughs) I also love history. I'm a historian. That's what my PhD is in, intellectual history, the history of ideas. And as it turns out, there's really no better way from my perspective to think about ideas, to study ideas across time than to look at science fiction, because really science fiction is the genre in which the ideas are the heroes. And I point out again and again to my students that science fiction represents a kind of reflection and propulsion, which is perfect for the study of ideas. Reflection in that in any given work of science fiction, we see reflected the concerns, the anxieties, the values of the time. So science fiction shows us a window into the moment in which that work of science fiction was created. But it's also, I say, a propulsion in the sense that science fiction, if I may sort of anthropomorphize science fiction and give it intent and motive, science fiction doesn't want a passive audience. Science fiction wants to be a call to action, wants to motivate, wants its consumers, readers, viewers, listeners, to then go take those ideas and do something and make the world, make the universe, make the galaxy better in some way, right? And so, again, reflection, propulsion, great way to study ideas because both of these things are embedded in science fiction. So let's get back to the idea of finding history. I think of the way that Star Wars relates to history in contrast to the way Star Trek relates to history. If you could draw a picture, for example, of the way Star Trek envisions or depicts history, let's say human history, we would probably see a slowly upturning, upward-pointing arrow depicting evolution, depicting progress. It's aspirational. It is suggesting that individuals and entire species can get better, can learn from mistakes and not make those same mistakes again. And in fact, Star Trek challenges us to make that upward trajectory in the history of our own lives and in the history of our species, make it happen by giving us several plot points indicating that upward line farther along on its trajectory. So, for example, it shows us 
point C, point D, we're at point A. Things look not great an awful lot of the time. And Star Trek gives us inspirational, aspirational depictions of what point C or D might look like without war, without prejudice and bigotry, you name it. And then we are responsible for creating that plot point B to get us from where we are to the kind of world Star Trek depicts. In fact, the scholar Manu Sadia, who wrote a very interesting book called Treconomics about the economics depicted in Star Trek, has pointed out that he loves Star Trek because it was inspirational. It was utopian. Growing up, it symbolized hope. But at the same time, he could not get into Star Wars growing up because growing up Jewish, hearing stories of the Holocaust, while at the same time living under the threat of nuclear war, Star Wars just hit too close to home. Star Wars, despite the fact it was taking place in space with spaceships and lightsabers and Jedi Knights, it felt too realistic. It felt like recent history breathing down his neck. And that was by and is by design. Because Star Wars has a different connection to history than the aspirational, evolutionary, hopeful view of Star Trek. Star Wars, created by a self-confessed history buff, George Lucas, whose example has then gone on to inspire generations now of Star Wars storytellers, Star Wars relates to history as patterns, as cycles. If you could imagine that Star Trek chart, again, with the upward-pointing arrow, the Star Wars illustration of history would be more like a big circle, going round and round and round. Or three-dimensionally, it would look like a spring, a slinky. Pull that thing out, and it's just wave after wave of circle, circle, circle coming around again. Remember, by the way, that Star Wars, according to its own logic, is history. It's a long time ago. That means we are its resonances. We are its patterns made manifest. If we see something that looks really familiar in Star Wars, according to Star Wars' own logic, we are repeating the past. In fact, Lucas and later his inheritors as Star Wars storytellers, are committed to the idea that history repeats, that there are things that happen over and over again. And one of the goals of Star Wars storytelling is to awaken us to these patterns so that we might be able to encourage the good patterns and avoid the bad patterns so that we are not simply manipulated by ignorant choices, but we can become actors with agency. I'm going to take Lucas's line about Star Wars storytelling and apply it to history in general when he says that it's like poetry. It rhymes. We see those patterns over and over again. And I would suggest that Star Wars storytelling then has two big takeaways 
if we're looking for history in Star Wars, first, watch for these patterns. Don't simply become cogs in the machine of (laughs) these patterns, but instead opt to become actors with agency. So watch for these repeated patterns. And secondly, I think the other big takeaway is be aware of when there is the possibility that we, however you want to define we, I happen to live in the United States, so I'm thinking of this as a U.S. citizen, when we might be the empire. Don't be the empire. And by talking about these patterns through the metaphor of science fiction, Star Wars storytellers often are warning us, hey, you might be the empire in this situation, or the new order. Fill in the blank. You understand what I'm talking about, this imperial power. Don't be the bad guys, right? And it allows us to see these patterns in a kind of dispassionate, one-step-remove, objective way and recognize, ah, in this scenario, we're not the rebellion. We're not the resistance. Don't be the empire. Okay, there are so many ways I could take this talk. I could, for example, looking for history, talk about the inspirations found in history for what we see in Star Wars. There are so many of my own favorite topics here. For instance, I could talk about the historical antecedents of the Jedi. Who inspired the Jedi? Some of the historical warrior monks who inspired the Jedi, and for that matter, the Sith, include the Shaolin monks from China, the samurai from Japan, and the poor fellow soldiers of Christ, better known as the Knights Templar from Europe. In fact, I could talk about how at dawn on Friday, October 13th, 1307, one of the possible places where we get the Friday the 13th superstition, scores of French Templars were simultaneously arrested by agents of King Philip who wanted the order destroyed. And so the knights were tortured and executed. And that seems to be a pattern we see a clear parallel to Emperor Palpatine's Order 66 in Star Wars when he chose to attack and destroy the Jedi because they were, like the Knights Templar with King Philip, rivals for popularity and power. There are recent episodes related to indigenous history in The Mandalorian, and the Book of Boba Fett series. The Book of Boba Fett, of course, starring an indigenous actor, Timuera Morrison, as the titular Boba Fett. I was, in particular, very impressed in the Book of Boba Fett, well, in both The Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett, by the depiction of the Tuscans on Tatooine, their culture, their right to their traditional land, In the Book of Boba Fett, we see scenes of a train moving across the dunes and its occupants shooting from the windows, leaving death in their wake, not unlike images from the U.S. West with, for example, buffalo and the people who depended on buffalo, members of native nations, in the crosshairs of these weapons. 
that's especially relevant today amid growing awareness of indigenous rights issues, including the abuses and deaths at residential schools, the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, truth and reconciliation commissions, etc. In short, there is a lot I could talk about. I could even talk about cinematic history, how Star Wars represents patterns in film, from John Ford films in the United States to Akira Kurosawa films in Japan to Sergio Leone films in Italy. We see these visual cues and resonances, even music cues and resonances. But to keep this manageable, I thought I'd pick one example of the big picture messages in Star Wars's engagement with history derived from each of the three major periods of Star Wars storytelling. The original trilogy era of Lucasfilm, the prequel trilogy era of Lucasfilm, and the current Disney era of Lucasfilm. So I want to take an example from each of those eras and think about how Star Wars encourages us to first look for patterns and second, recognize when we might be behaving like the Empire. And the implication there is to stop it when we do. So let me start with an example from the original trilogy, from the 1970s and 80s. One of the themes that emerges from the original Star Wars, we now call A New Hope, The Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, is that major powers with superior numbers, weaponry, even finances to fund war, can overlook what a threat the underdogs pose. In this kind of scenario, forces are fighting for the Empire because they're ordered to do so, sometimes in the case of those who are drafted against their own wishes, or they are paid to do so as mercenaries, in short, they have no personal stake in the conflict. And such forces, Star Wars suggests, do not fight the same way as people who have everything to lose, who are defending their families, their homes, their futures. Also, a corollary to this, outsiders coming in to fight on someone else's home turf lack local knowledge of terrain, of resources, of the best tactics to use in that setting. One clear historical example is that of the American Revolutionary War. The American colonies were outgunned, outmanned, facing a global empire in the British Empire that dominated affairs, but the British forces were not personally engaged. They had no stake in the battle. And the mercenary forces, like the Hessians, really were there for a paycheck, and that was their goal. The colonists, on the other hand, who supported the revolution, had made themselves traitors. There was really no turning back. Everything was on the line. Their families, their futures. They faced a much more prepared, much more uh, well-trained, well-armed force, but they had 
knowledge of the terrain. They had native allies who were skilled and experienced in warfare in the setting. They fought with guerrilla tactics. And in the end, the underdog wins. A clear present-day example would be, of course, that President Putin thought Russia's invasion of Kyiv, for example, would take a couple of days. And instead, look at the conviction, look at the power of Ukrainian resistance to that violent invasion. The Star Wars example that comes immediately to mind from the original trilogy would be the Ewoks living in the forest moon of Endor in Return of the Jedi. In fact, if you go to Sideshow Collectibles and look at the statue that represents Fall of the Empire, that's its title, it's Ewoks attacking a stormtrooper. Not Jedi, not the Rebel Alliance as a whole, right? It's Ewoks. Because Ewoks changed the tide of the battle. Although the Ewoks reflected Lucas's dare-to-be-cute motto, they are formidable fighters. They mastered forest and jungle warfare. They are shown to take out not only stormtroopers, but big AT-AT, AT-AT, walkers. They join causes with the rebels, and their actions lead to decisive victory. So we might be thinking of, you know, American colonists fighting the British or even Ukrainians facing the huge foe of Russia. But George Lucas was thinking of the Viet Cong. The Ewoks are an indigenous population responding to an imperial power invading their home. In fact, the use of traps and snares by the Ewoks directly recalls guerrilla jungle warfare in Vietnam. Now, there are two things to note here about Lucas's inspiration. First of all, he's asking us to recognize the pattern. Soldiers with superior technology, but no stake in the fight, cannot easily vanquish local knowledge cannot easily prevail against fighters who have everything to lose, and thus all the motivation to persevere and resist and fight. But here's the other takeaway. Again, I'm coming from a U.S. perspective here, as was, for that matter, George Lucas. If you look at this theme, this pattern, as a parallel to Vietnam, then we are not the victorious rebels. We are not the good guys. We are the empire. And that is not a pattern to be celebrated. That is a pattern, Star Wars implies, that we should stop. All right, let's move forward in time, in our time, to the prequel era, late 90s to the mid-2000s. Let's talk about examples from the prequel films, The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, Episodes 1 through 3. Together, these three films tell the story of the fall of a republic and the rise of an empire. Or, to put it another way, they tell of people in democracies voting away their rights and voting in tyranny. During the making of this trilogy, George Lucas said, and I quote, 
This idea of a democracy being given up, and in many cases being given up in a time of crisis and fear, you see it all throughout history, whether it's Julius Caesar or Napoleon or Adolf Hitler. You see these democracies under a lot of pressure in a crisis situation who end up simply giving up a lot of the freedoms they have and a lot of the checks and balances to somebody with a strong authority to help get them through the crisis. End quote. One way to look at this, as Lucas alludes to, is that the Star Wars prequel trilogy replays the Roman story, putting the Galactic Republic in the role as the Roman Republic, Senate and all, and Emperor Palpatine as a combination of Julius Caesar and his nephew Octavian, who replaced the Republic with the Empire under Octavian as the first Roman Emperor Augustus. That would cast Padme Amidala and Bail Organa in the Senate, watching Palpatine announce the Galactic Empire in Revenge of the Sith, hearing the loud applause, in the role of Cicero, watching the Roman Senate's enthusiasm for Caesar. Remember that it's from Padme at this time we get one of the most identifiable Star Wars quotes. That is, so this is how liberty dies, with thunderous applause. Now, under Napoleon, France did something much like Rome. It gave away its republic to a charismatic leader who turned it into an empire. Napoleon got himself named first consul and then emperor in 1804, a move, it's worth noting, approved by a large majority of the French citizens in a referendum vote. Again, so this is how liberty dies, right? In his coronation oath in 1804, Napoleon said he was assuming the role of emperor to, quote, maintain the integrity of the territory of the republic, end quote. Not unlike Palpatine's, quote, in order to ensure the security and continuing stability, the republic will be reorganized into the first galactic empire for a safe and secure society, end quote. Both are basically here using the rhetoric of protecting the republic to justify their action of destroying and replacing the Republic. So, going back to that quote from Lucas, he pulled out the examples of Caesar, Napoleon, and Hitler. So let's move on to the Hitler example here. The parallels between World War II and Star Wars are well-known, well-discussed. You get everything from uniforms to terms like stormtroopers to visual dogfights translated from airplanes in the sky to fighters in space. Star Wars is nothing if not a World War II kind of parable. Perhaps most importantly, Palpatine's rise to power mirrors Adolf Hitler's in Germany. Let me give you a few examples of the empires and the Nazis rise to power. First, both Palpatine and Hitler used democracy to get to power. Hitler took advantage of a time of perceived crisis to step forward with a strong voice of leadership. And thus the Republic's legislature, the Reichstag, voted him into the office of chancellor. 
Similarly, Palpatine took advantage of a time of perceived crisis to step forward with a strong voice of leadership, and thus the Senate of the Galactic Republic voted him into the office of Chancellor in the Phantom Menace. There's a very relevant quote from U.S. reporter Dorothy Thompson in Berlin that always gives me chills. She wrote, quote, Hitler's movement was going to vote dictatorship in. In itself, a fascinating idea. Imagine a would-be dictator setting out to persuade a sovereign people to vote away their rights, end quote. If this doesn't seem immediately relevant to today, to current events, you might want to look out the window. <laughs> I'm just saying. Another parallel. Both consolidate power through emergency powers. Each leader used a moment of crisis, like the Reichstag fire of 1933 for Hitler, the separatist conflict for Palpatine, to manipulate elected representatives into consolidating his power. Hitler received legislative power through the Enabling Act. Palpatine was granted emergency powers by the Senate in Attack of the Clones. And another relevant quote, after being granted emergency powers, Palpatine smugly says, I love democracy. Both create a secret army to keep them in power. Hitler inherited a Germany with restricted armed forces under the Treaty of Versailles. He rebuilt and armed those forces, putting a new military force behind him. In the same way, Palpatine inherited a galactic republic with no standing military. So he persuades the Senate to accept the creation of the Army of the Republic using clone troopers, which he then uses to destroy the Jedi in Revenge of the Sith. Both wipe out potential adversaries, speaking of wiping out the Jedi. The Knight of the Long Knives, also called Operation Hummingbird, or sometimes mockingly Reich Murder Week, was a purge that took place in Nazi Germany from June 30th to July 2nd, 1934, when the Nazi regime carried out a series of political extrajudicial executions. The whole point of that was to consolidate Hitler's absolute hold on power in Germany. And the parallel there, of course, Order 66, the extermination of the Jedi by Emperor Palpatine. Both even use similar rhetoric. Hitler promised a thousand-year Reich, and Palpatine, in The Revenge of the Sith, promised an empire that will last for 10,000 years. And in other parallels, both destroy the democracy that elevated, and one could argue deserved, them. Both Hitler and Palpatine disbanded or dissolved their legislatures. Both announce and create a new order, and both maintain their dictatorship through a rule by fear. Here's a relevant quote from StarWars.com's Cole Horton. Quote, With power consolidated and a powerful military at hand, both Hitler and Palpatine were able to rule their peoples by fear. Historian John Keegan best summarized the situation in Germany. Quote, Throughout Hitler's empire, coercion, repression, punishment, reprisal, terror, extermination, the chain of measure by which 
Nazi Germany exercised its power over occupied Europe, end quote. In the fictional Star Wars universe, Tarkin summarized the situation in Episode 4, the original Star Wars, A New Hope. Fear will keep the local systems in line, end quote. This extended, of course, to slavery and genocide. Star Wars here, I think, better than anywhere, is a history lesson and a warning. And just to bring this home, I want to add John Adams, former president of the United States, in a letter to John Taylor in 1814, warned, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There was never a democracy that did not commit suicide, end quote. So here, I would argue, the relevant question in Star Wars is this. As we see the pattern of republic to empire to new republic that in turn is destroyed again by tyranny, how do we stop the cycle? How do we ensure no new Palpatines? How can we make certain liberty doesn't die to thunderous applause? Now for my last example. One more example of how we can find history in Star Wars, I want to go to the newest era of Star Wars storytelling, the post-2012 era with Disney owning Lucasfilm. And if you want to know what kind of Star Wars fan I am, I am an equal opportunity (laughs) Star Wars fan. I am an original 1977 Star Wars fan. However, my favorite Jedi came from the prequel era. And yes, my favorite Star Wars film came in the Disney era of Star Wars. That is Rogue One. And that's where I want to go now. Rogue One from 2016. The film depicts the creation of the Death Star, a superweapon of mass destruction, not unlike the atom bombs used in 1945. The Death Star is designed in secret, with implications that forever change history, the course, frankly, of the galaxy. Of course, the Death Star changes all the power dynamics. Certainly, we can see that today, too, right now, with the impact of weapons of mass destruction. I think the world reaction to the invasion of Ukraine would be very different if President Putin didn't keep reminding us that he has nuclear weapons. Weapons of mass destruction, game changers. The prequel novel to Rogue One, Catalyst, which I highly recommend, it sets the stage for Rogue One, leans heavily into concerns of how scientists can find their research co-opted by governments, weaponized, and outside of their control. While others can be manipulated, even forced, to give their expertise for projects so secret they themselves are not told what they're working on. From my own perspective, this makes me think of Oak Ridge in eastern Tennessee in the United States, a secret city built by the government in which tens of thousands of people worked in World War II, most unknowingly helping to build the world's first atomic bomb. Lost Stars, 
another Star Wars novel I recommend, picks up on this parallel. It imagines how the Empire would explain to its own officers, including Alderanians, people from Alderaan, why it used the Death Star to obliterate the planet of Alderaan, which was full of civilians, non-combatants, right? The rationale was, if we hadn't used this on these civilians, the rebels would have kept fighting. There would be even more bloodshed. So, the logic goes, we are killing innocent people now to try to make sure that innocent people in the future don't get killed. Now, when I talk about this in class sometimes, my students are just incredulous. Who would believe this kind of twisted logic? Kill people we know are civilians, because hypothetically in the future, civilians could die. And then we look at, frankly, the U.S. justification for bombing Japan in World War II. Clear resonances there. Again, Star Wars is asking us not only to see patterns, but to be self-aware of where we fit in those patterns, to not be complicit in the bad patterns, to not behave like the Empire. As the Lucasfilm Story Group's Pablo Hidalgo told StarWars.com in an interview about Rogue One, quote, in developing Galen Erso, a scientist who made a weapon that would ultimately be capable of unimaginable destruction, we looked at the scientist and leader of the Manhattan Project, J. Robert Oppenheimer, as a source of inspiration. In fact, the very first story treatment for Rogue One was titled Destroyer of Worlds, which is from Hindu scripture, but Oppenheimer used it to describe his reaction to nuclear weapons development. I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. With that as a basis, we couldn't help but think about the nuclear arms race and the intrigue that surrounds it, End quote. Gareth Edwards, the director of Rogue One, notes that Oppenheimer, quote, ended up having a lot of regret and openly spoke out against it. And I really thought that was interesting. Someone who was trying to do good, like trying to end a war, but creates something that can be catastrophic, and it's not black and white, end quote. In fact, the codename for Rogue One while it was in production was Los Alamos, which was appropriately borrowed from the town in New Mexico where the Manhattan Project developing the atomic bomb was based. Now, Oppenheimer was worried about the Nazis. He saw his project initially as necessary because Nazi Germany was trying to make the same thing, this bomb. He thought that would be disastrous if Nazi Germany had that kind of power. But Oppenheimer did not support bombing Japan, especially Nagasaki, which he thought had no military justification whatsoever. And he would go on to lobby for international control of nuclear power to avert nuclear proliferation and to avoid a nuclear arms race with the Soviet Union. He was very worried about Russia becoming ultimately a nuclear power. Again, topical. He could not control what happened due to his research. That's a takeaway here. Again, note the pattern. 
And, again, don't be the Empire. So the Oppenheimer figure in Rogue One, Galen Erso, his story is a bitter one. He flees and gives up his work to try to avoid being used by the Empire, to avoid having his science used by the Empire. But ultimately he's captured, he's forced to work on the project. But although he makes the Death Star, he also sabotages it through its one fatal flaw, the flaw that then he shares with the Rebellion. And I think it's also worth taking note of, really worth underscoring here. In a piece about how the government can manipulate science, the hero of Rogue One, yes, okay, there are many heroes in Rogue One, but the one who gets the whole ball rolling enables the destruction of the Death Star. The hero is a whistleblower, Bodhi Rook, who worked for the Empire and then courageously made the choice to redeem himself by spilling a very important secret that could be used against the very government he had worked for. And so there are my three examples from three different eras of Star Wars storytelling about how we can find history in Star Wars. If you are looking for more information, a good place to start is the anthology Star Wars and History, edited by Nancy Regan and Janice Liedl. In particular, some of my comments today were inspired by the essays Why Rebels Triumph, How Insignificant Rebellions Can Change History by William J. Astor, and I, Sidious, Historical Dictators and Senator Palpatine's Rise to Power. Both of those essays are in that Star Wars and History anthology. There are also some great essays on StarWars.com, particularly about the World War II angle with Star Wars. I've also found some very valuable insights in the recent book, Star Wars After Lucas, A Critical Guide to the Future of the Galaxy by Dan Golding. And now I'd like to leave you with a thought. I mentioned at the opening that Star Trek is often viewed as the more hopeful of the two franchises when you compare Star Trek and Star Wars. But I think there is a lot of hope in Star Wars's invitation for us to find patterns in history, to anticipate them, and maybe next time try to stop the bad stuff from happening or to encourage the good stuff as it were. There's also, I think, a lot of hope in the ability to be self-aware, to be self-critical, to be, most importantly, self-correcting. Are we, however you want to define we, are we the empire in this situation? Asking the question is the first step toward becoming less Palpatine and adding more rebellion and more resistance to our world. Thank you. May the Force be with you always. And with that, I hope that you enjoyed my talk, Finding History in Star Wars. I certainly enjoyed sharing it with you, and I look forward to joining you again very soon when we talk about something completely different, when we get together to take another look back at genre history. Thank you. 
Amy, what can I say? What can I say? Thank you so much indeed. Oh, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure, Amy. So that is it. That show is 692 put to bed. Oh, have you enjoyed it? Like you say, it's uh, we're getting close to 700 there now. Wow, man. Listen, if you want to support, well, that's a that's a kind of fundamental factor of how we've gotten to 692 by your good selves supporting the show. That would be fantastic. There's Patreon or there's PayPal links on the website. Please help out. That would be lovely. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.